Hello and welcome to the 100 Day Writing Challenge, Day 76. I'm not a big fan of dystopian or post-apocalyptic fiction, it has to be said. For some, it's merely one small cul-de-sac in the broad roadmap of science fiction. For others, it's the sharp edge of political and moral fables. The grittiness and horror makes it more serious, more artistic. It's the SF it's okay for grown-ups to read and write. But personally, I just find it incredibly depressing. I often get to a certain point in the book and find myself wondering why I'm reading it. Why would I pay someone to lie at me about a terrible, disastrous future? I've suffered for years with really bad bad depression and anxiety. I've already got my brain to do that for free. If you're mentally ill... Uh, like I have periodically been, and and like what human being doesn't occasionally suffer from anxiety, reading about doomed worlds feels like a bit of a busman's holiday. I grew up in the 80s with lots of books for young people set during or in the immediate aftermath of a nuclear war. They were horrifying and bleak, and I know for a lot of people of my generation, they feel like actual traumatic memories, right? Like, We were terrorised by those books and the associated TV shows, radio plays and films. Is it good art because it made children feel anxious, depressed, frightened and powerless? Is a story successful if it makes you feel something strongly, even if the net effect on you is more worry, more suffering? Now, you'd think from the way I've loaded those questions that I have a definite answer. I actually don't. I'm... Well, my internal jury's out on this, and I'm very, very comfortable with that position. I spoke to the researcher Paul J. Zak about his work with the neurotransmitter oxytocin. Oxytocin is the thing that is released when a mother holds her baby to her skin for the first time. It helps stimulate the breasts to produce milk, and it also produces feelings of intense closeness and trust and love. Now, think about like how fundamental that is to the experience of being a human. What like an incredible molecule. One study he did found that when people were given a dose of oxytocin uh, nasally, they gave 80% more to a stranger than in a placebo group when deciding how to split a sum of money. And he's measured oxytocin release in all sorts of situations from remote tribes in Papua New Guinea, before and after a welcoming ceremony, to a wedding party in Kent before and after they'd said their vows. In both cases, the bonding ritual prompted oxytocin release in those most central to it. Um, You can go and listen to the episode where I talked to him uh, of Death of a Thousand Cuts if you like. His name's Paul J. Zak. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, and I should say that like <laughs> oxytocin denaturalizes in contact with the air. So he had to take some quite elaborate machines and um, take blood samples from people, which, you know, as you can imagine, is slightly disruptive to someone having their wedding um which i think is really funny and cool but like right we reliably produce oxytocin when we feel deep empathy for a character in a movie or book you know he talked to me about like being in floods of tears on a plane watching a movie i think it was solid gold baby and and being like what's going on right and in a lot of studies of like people responding to fiction or movies uh you know literary you know literature or movies they um it's very difficult for us to sort of distinguish between someone responding to a quote-unquote real event emotionally and someone responding to fiction, a story. They, at the moment, 
are largely indistinguishable. And that's really interesting to me. Like he's done work taking samples from people at the end of sad movies during test screenings, for example. So here's the thing. Deeply tragic stories where we care about the characters make us release oxytocin or at least tends to with people who are, um, especially with people that he calls a, a neurological um, super responders. Uh, but, you know, when we engage with a character and we feel sad, we release oxytocin. And that oxytocin, as I've said, induces feelings of closeness, trust, love and generosity. Ones that persist beyond the end of the story so that afterwards we're more likely to give to charity. Even if that charity has nothing to do with the story we just watched. It's just that residual effect of elevated oxytocin. We just generally feel a deep, I, I think, very maternal empathy for the humans around us when we care about a character and see them suffering. It's like it reminds us at some deep level we're all of us family. So writing a tragic story or one of human suffering might sometimes induce a physiological responses that help us to behave better in the real world, almost as if we're trying to create the happy ending the story lacked. In fact, there's, I believe... Uh, you know, there's a story that, as far as I can tell from reading up about it, is true that after Ronald Reagan saw, I think it's the movie The Day After Tomorrow. I think Threads is the British one, but the movie The Day After Tomorrow, where they're like there's a nuclear strike on America and all this kind of terrible suffering, he came out of it like deeply depressed like really shaken and deeply impressed. I'm not a fan of Ronald Reagan. This isn't a story about how great he is as a as a person. But just, you know, as a data point, he reportedly came out of that movie like really bummed out. And and after that came the SALT, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, the signing of that, the sort of like reduction of nuclear warheads. Uh, that he attributed and some around him attributed to having seen that movie and being visibly shaken and then depressed by it, right? And that's a world leader who had control and the ability to make things potentially better. And so maybe sometimes, like, feeling frigging bummed out about stuff, it can reach people who have the power to change that, you know? I don't know. Like, not all dystopian fiction is post-apocalyptic, of course. Some just feature brutal regimes or weird pervasive ideologies that make daily life hell for those trapped beneath them. And, and in those scenarios, right, sometimes those regimes are overthrown by the end of the story, right? Sometimes it's see, what we actually watch uh, are people against Im apparently impossible, dreadful odds rising up and making the world a better place, even when it was like crap sack to begin with, right? Now, how is that not a story of hope? It's like, here is human beings suffering under the worst you can imagine and it's just everywhere it's wall to wall and they survive and they overcome it surely that although it's technically dystopian is actually very 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 hopeful and it is holding a light out in the darkness to people suffering the worst possible things you can imagine and those scenarios right they're happening now as we talk right it's what i always think about when i watched um uh it, a battle royale right you know the story about like uh students japanese students being forced to fight each other to as in a kind of like big uh, uh, battle royale and the survivor is gonna be the one who gets to live right and it's 
all a kind of like very heightened, kind of exaggerated satirical story until you remember, and the, and the second movie, uh, much maligned as it is, does directly remind us of this, that there are children fighting. There are, We do have child soldiers in conflict zones right now, happening right now. So this is not a moral fable about something that isn't true that could never happen. It's happening now, right? And so many ideas of dystopian fiction are happening now in our world. You know, we know countries where people are locked up, tortured or killed for expressing the wrong views or being the wrong colour or sexuality. Countries rife with corruption or torn apart by ongoing conflict. If we can't write about real human suffering, you know, what use is art? And look, here's the thing. To an extent, the world is always ending. You know, devastating things happen to individuals every morning. People are bereaved. It's commonplace. And that sense of grief, it just feels like the world's over, right? It's a human condition. And I don't say that to minimise it, you know, to be like, oh, well, what can you expect? What are you going to do? And I say, like, we, to a certain extent, build our psychological stability around not acknowledging that and i just want to say for sometimes for some people an apocalypse a collapse the end of the world is the only world that matches the landscape of their heart now as i say i, I don't find these things art that i usually particularly want to consume i have to manage my mental health reading dark stories definitely is not a moral obligation. Making yourself ill doesn't help anyone. I, I think there's sometimes a sort of emphasis placed on bearing witness to terrible things. And um, I think you can still love and be compassionate without just traumatising and re-traumatising yourself through exposure and grinding yourself down. Okay, so that I want to make that really, really clear. But I think people have the right to create this art and people have the right to consume it if it helps them. And But I do worry, you know, I, I do worry sometimes that novels like this have a kind of mesmerising effect. They're so grim. They just hijack all these primal fear mechanisms inside us. But that's okay. You know, not all fiction has to be for me or the protagonist of reality. I'm glad that there's a plurality out there and some of it just wasn't made for Tim Clare. Now, one quality that dystopias do have, one very obvious one that's central to any successful fiction is a problem, right? There are no shortage of conflicts for your protagonist to face in these worlds. If it's post-apocalyptic, survival often being the most basic, then the survival and welfare of people they care about often comes next. It may surprise you, given everything we've just discussed, that today's exercise is not going to require you to write a post-apocalyptic dystopia. So why did you bring all that up, Tim? Well, today I'd actually like you to have a go at something much harder. Uto utopian fiction. Utopian. Utopian fiction. It was most. I was gonna. What I was hoping is when I delivered that, it was gonna be like a cool reveal. I slightly fudged the um, delivery, but it's fine. There's like this is the imperfect fallen world we live in. My utopia apparently would have the. I'd be not so lazy that I couldn't be bothered to edit that. Look, now you can see the problem with writing fiction set in a world or at least a country, a nation where lots and lots of stuff is going really well you know where's the conflict right if it's just like pum 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 and like the daisies uh, have all got smiling faces and a swaying i mean that's terrifying obviously that would be a, a, a bizarre and scary nightmarish world but i'm 
you know, like, where is the conflict? How do we generate story in a world that's a lot better than ours? Well, no one said utopias have to be quote-unquote perfect and I don't mean by that that secretly the whole thing is powered by some dark engine room underneath the city where shackled drones shovel kittens into a furnace because that's just a dystopia in disguise if the answer to the question who's paying for all this shit is a suffering underclass sorry bucko your world is a dystopia just with a hideous elite ruling over it but your utopia can still be a world where humans experience much of what it means to be human right things can go wrong like people might still get ill and age and die what we're not looking for we're not asking for perfection here you know or if some of those problems about illness um aging and death have been solved you know they might still fall in and out of love make mistakes lose their temper whatever you know humanity in general might still face problems even if we're all being kind to each other and largely cooperating in the face of those problems so i wonder if today uh, and I know it's a bit of an ask. If you can have a go at writing a short scene, I'm thinking one from a little way in to an imaginary utopian novel written by you, where the protagonist comes up against a problem, a conflict. Now, this problem or conflict can be large or small, but it has to be one that's meaningful to them. So a problem or conflict that is obstructing them from or potentially complicating their ability to achieve a goal that they care about. And while I don't want to, you to slow down the narrative with lots of explanations about the rules and history of this world, well, as you know, Jim, or kind of like, of course, this thing had never been a problem since they solved blah, blah, blah. Like, you don't have to like do those info dumps in the text. Um, you know, whether this world is one that's grown out of ours or a different universe altogether. But I do think you can use environmental details and little asides or references characters make to suggest the kind of place this character lives in. Feel free to really go to town, I'd say. That's my like one steer to you, you know, which you can ignore or go with. You know, do feel free to sort of luxuriate in a sense of wonder and joy and peace that this setting offers. The incredible things that have been achieved, the feeling of abundance, the trust, whatever it is that contributes to making this world a real utopia. And I think there's like part of us that is used to seeing those elements and immediately our defences go up because we go, hang on, come on, it can't, it can't be this good. You know, we think something sinister must be going on. And I think sometimes there's a kind of sense among certain types of author that portraying that work kind of world uh, is, you know, representing the possibility of progress and harmony is somehow a betrayal. Like, to write genuinely like revolutionary fiction, one that address it you've got to address the problems in our world and the way that you address them is always by having them embodied in your world and not by showing the possibility of something better so that's just you know that just something to keep in mind i'm editorial like look this is a tricky exercise i grant you i'm offering you a lot of latitude here and of all the genres utopian fiction is the one i've le left till sort of like the end of our genre rush because it's probably the least attempted because i suspect it offers the least obvious ins in terms of story hooks um but that's okay look i trust you to have a go at this like the reason i'm setting these as 10 minute exercises and not three-year odysseys is because like if you stack it no harm done and at the very least for the next 10 minutes maybe you can enjoy just hanging out there
somewhere nice. Okay, so a scene from A Ways Into an Imaginary Utopian Novel where the protagonist encounters a problem. Are you ready? Three, two, one, go.
And that's it. You're done. Um, the author Brian Aldiss had a, a lovely disparaging term for a certain type of post-apocalyptic fiction where the hero ends up becoming terribly important in the New World Order, leading the survivors. Maybe he drives around in sports cars plundered from the empty streets, etc. Aldiss called, called them cosy catastrophes. He was talking about novels like uh, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids, which I have to say when I read it featured far fewer triffids than I'd been led to expect from the title uh the trivids are actually really very little to do with the story at all it's it, it's quite amazing <laughs> you keep expecting them to turn up and they're kind of like a sideshow really but mainly they the trivids is the story of how a put-upon middle manager underappreciated at his work and his work is pretty sort of trivial in the grand scheme of things it seems suddenly becomes leader of his community and, and women are flocking to him saying, well, you're going to have to help us repopulate the earth and, and so forth. And all the annoying other human beings clogging up the world are gone. Suddenly he is top of the stack. It's an apocalypse, but it's also something of a kind of British power fantasy, I think. I think a lot of post-apocalyptic dystopias are secretly wish fulfillment in disguise you know the world can feel very complicated and stressful at the best of times and it goes on and on and on end of the world stories promise at least a kind of closure a peace even if it's ugly and violent on its way out sometimes authors of dystopian fiction defend their work and i and by the way i don't think it needs defending i don't think they need to do that it it stands on its own but sometimes they defend it by saying it's important that stories face the tough problems of being alive that they face up to the possibility of the really darkest things in human experience but i think one of the hardest most difficult things that we as human beings can do is optimism hope love and empathy even though embracing them connects us to all of humanity and therefore all of humanity's pain. I mean, my goodness. That's frigging tough. Right. Sorry about that. Bit of a heavy one today, but we got through it. We made it together. Well done. See you tomorrow. The 100 Day Writing Challenge is made possible with the kind support of Arts Council England.